0: when I accidentally went to a two-week meditation retreat like this um, prior to that time I did not know anyone who meditated I was not interested in meditation or spiritual practice Um, I didn't know anything about Buddhism um It was pure accident. But when I got to the uh, retreat um, it was strange and uh, all new to me. And I sat up back and I leaned against a piano for two weeks. And I hadn't done a single minute of meditating prior to that. And uh, this was the first three-month retreat that um, in 1975 at Bucksport, Maine. And uh, it all was pretty foreign, pretty strange, except when I heard the Dharma talks. When I heard the Dharma talks in the evening, I listened and it was as if I was hearing someone say for the first time what I'd always known and believed. Even though I'd never read it before, never heard it before, it was it just fit like hand in glove with how I understood. And that understanding of practice that I got from those talks was good enough to uh, keep me doing retreats for the next six or seven years when I was on staff and around the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. Then Sairo Upandita came to... America for the first time in 1984 to offer a three-month retreat, and I was invited to participate, not because I was such a stellar meditator, but I just happened to be around a lot. And at one point in the middle of the retreat, you know, I was reporting, I was trying my best, I was, you know, doing what he seemed to be telling me to do and doing my best, but I was not, I, I was a really slow student. I, I was not, not a stellar. But anyway, at some point he asked me something about, well, what do you, what do you think you're doing here? I mean, what, what, how do you understand practice? And I said, well, you know, uh, you just sit, you know, like I've been doing, just sit and try to be mindful and then someday, poof, you're enlightened. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when he heard that, he just burst out laughing. And then he proceeded to explain to me, "No, it's good to have an idea a little more a little more understanding of what it is you're doing here and what the path of a practice is really all about and then of course, he was offering a very uh, a very well defined path of practice uh, in the course of that retreat. I say this because you know we we all come to practice for some reason. You know, um, part of my interest in going to the first retreat was, well, I thought, you know, meditation might induce something like drug-like experiences, and that was my spiritual practice up till that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was looking for, you know, some kind of buzz, some kind of high, some kind of altered reality, something. I, did, I didn't know what I was looking for. And you know we come for we come for other reasons. It might be just stress reduction uh, or management. It might be uh, some kind of spiritual goodie. It might be escape. It might we come for all kinds of reasons. But at some point, we l- may look for a little more clarity, a little more understanding, a little more direction, a little more well, what's going on here? And for me, it was you know, after eight or eight or nine years, it was like, I've been practicing mindfulness, but I really don't think I get it. I, I don't get it. I, I, I haven't got it. <laughs> I, I really didn't have any momentum, and I really didn't have any any confirmation that I was doing anything other than just sitting still and letting time go by. So that's when I made the decision to go to Burma and, and uh, practice Really intensively, I was on fire to understand the Dharma then, and what I realized now that I was missing was a real a, a comprehensive understanding of the path and how to understand what it is we're doing here now you know when you when you watch a, a news clip on TV or on online, you watch a news clip there's a thirty second news clip of some event, and you see and you hear it. There's these people doing this and that, and this thing happens, that thing happens, and you see it. And at the end of uh, uh, the 30 seconds, the spin commentators come on, and they talk about what you just saw and heard. And they talk about it for the next 30 minutes. And at the end of those 30 minutes, you have no idea what you saw. All you have is the views and opinions of the spin Spin Meisters. Well, we have been listening to people spin our experience since the time we were born, beginning with mom and dad and other primary caregivers. And after a few years, they you know, en- enlisted aunts and uncles and neighbors and friends and school teachers, the government, the religious leaders, all kinds of people to just kind of help you get entrained. And here we are, fully conditioned into, well, this human life, which needs to happen. We need, we grow up in a family, in a culture, in a community, and we need to be trained to live in that. But as you may have noticed, our training is not a path of happiness. It may be a path of success. It may be a path of getting along. It may be a path of appearing normal whatever it is, but there may be another map, there may be another path for happiness or the end of suffering. So tonight I want to talk about this this first task that the yogi has that Saito Utejaniya uh, speaks about that uh, Carol mentioned the other night, and that is to hear what the right view of experience is. Because right view holds a pretty prominent place in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, which is the, uh, his prescription for training the heart and mind to realize the end of suffering. And the first, the first practice of the Noble Eightfold Path is right view. Now when I say right view the right of right view is the way of understanding that does not lead to suffering or leads to least suffering or the end of suffering and that's what the that's that's the buddha's kind of that's the foundation of the buddha's teaching the foundation of the buddha's matrix of understanding the world does this lead to suffering is this suffering and lead to suffering or is this not suffering and lead and or lead to the end of suffering so when he talks about right view he talks about the way of seeing the way of understanding something that leads to the end of suffering so it's the first of the eight uh, first factor on the noble eightfold path when sariputta was asked by some monks who were having a discussion about right, right view, uh, they were asking him what it, what, what, a, what's essential for us to know, to establish right view in our own hearts and minds. And he said there are two elements, and the first is you need to hear it from someone else. That means you can't figure it out for yourself. We're educated Westerners that have problem solving as our default uh, activity of mind and to tell to tell us that we can't figure it out for ourselves is a real challenge for us to accept but the understanding that the buddha realized was so subtle and so pervasive and so transformative and transcendent that we don't have we don't have the skills for that but if we hear it from another and the second element is to develop uh, wise attention if we hear what right view is and we develop wise attention we will begin to confirm through our own experience the correctness of that view that way of seeing that way of understanding now that shouldn't be so, that shouldn't be so hard because we've already learned how to do that you remember you won't remember but you know that somewhere back there, when you were a young little uninformed, naive uh, child, someone said, Hey, you know what? The sun doesn't go around the earth. <laughs> but to our eye, you know, every morning it, the sun comes up over there, goes overhead and sets over there. A few hours later it comes up again over there goes overhead and sits over there. From our direct, immediate perception, we would have to say the sun goes around the earth. We have no other way of understanding it from that observation. And yet there have been those in human history who have looked at the stars and the moon and they've watched the way things move with more knowledge, with more understanding, and they have said, No, you know what? The sun doesn't go around the, the earth. In fact, the earth spins on its axis, creating day and night, and it is the earth that goes around the sun in a year. And we have been told that insistently. We've even been tested on it, and we've all passed the test. Because now we believe, right? We do not believe that the sun goes around the earth. Is there anybody that believes the sun goes around the earth? No. And yet, most of us have not had the experience, the direct perceptual experience of that, but we believe it. So hearing the right view about the earth and the sun, we can begin to understand it, we can begin to figure it out, and and if you're an astronomer, you can really confirm it. So what I want to speak about tonight is right view. The right view of what we're doing here. There's many ways of understanding what we're doing here but I want to talk about how to understand it in a way that leads to the end of your suffering. So I'm going to speak about some skillful or right views of the Dharma, some right views of meditation, and some right views of wisdom and liberation. The Dharma that the Buddha taught is the way things are. He's pointing to the way things are. He's pointing to the truth of his experience, which was the way things were for him. It's also now encoded in his teachings. We call what the Buddha taught the Dharma. The Buddha was a scientist of the mind, the heart and the mind. And by paying very careful attention to his own very intimate and subtle experiences, he was able to understand how he suffered, why he suffered, how he came to the end of suffering, and the, the the trainings that were required to do that. And that's what he shared with us, the nature of the human being, the nature of the mind, so that what we are observing as we sit here and Pay attention to our body and mind is the nature of being human. It's all natural experience, it's natural phenomena unfolding due to causes and conditions. Now, we may not know the causes and conditions that contribute to or that give rise to this experience, you know, whether it's mental or physical suffering of one sort or another. We know some of the causes and conditions, but not all of them. And so what we're studying here is, or what we're observing is this mind and body in order to gather the data to understand correctly, through the eyes of the Dhamma, how to realize the end of suffering. So all that occurs in the body and the mind is natural, it's nature, it's a natural process, it is the lawful effect of causes and conditions. What that means is there's no accident. There's not a mistake. It's not something that something's, uh, happening that's not supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be happening due to causes and conditions. It may not be what you want to happen, as we know. But nevertheless, there are ways of understanding it. So we could say, now why is it that... Uh, today you have a little bit more awareness than you had the day before you came in a retreat. Well there's causes and conditions here. We have a group of people all practicing the same way. We have instructions. We have guidance. You have nothing else to do. You put away your cell phones, your to-do book, your to-do list. You put everything away. You have a singular purpose just to pay attention, to understand the way things are, and to develop awareness. And Due to those causes and conditions, you have more awareness today than two days ago. Easy to see. It's natural. If you practice something with that regularity and that singular purpose and a lot of energy, you can't help but head in that direction. So what I want to talk about is conditionality. The conditioning effect of everything around us. Because the Buddha talked about the nature of conditioning, the, the experiences that condition our experience. And, of course, then the end of suffering is called the unconditioned. So when he talks about conditioning and conditionality, he's talking about the laws of nature. It's not accidental that you're more aware now two days ago it's a law of nature if you practice something repeatedly you get better at it it has effect so the laws of nature include the very obvious laws of nature that Western science has discovered like the physical laws of nature You know like the law of gravity nobody invented the law of gravity <laughs> you know it's been observed it's been understood through obs- through very careful observation and we all live with the law of gravity it's not like you can argue with it you, <laughs> you can try but it's painful and that's the lesson to learn about the laws of nature if you understand the laws of nature and you live in alignment with them you suffer less otherwise we end up struggling pushing against the way things are due to causes and conditions that are outside of our control so the physical laws of nature, like gravity, is something that we easily submit to. There's the uh, biological laws of nature, you know, the laws governing the unfolding of life, life as we know it. Uh, the 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 process of seeds, plants grow from seeds. The seeds are produced by the fruit of the plant. So if you pick an apple and you save the seeds and you plant the seeds, you'll get an apple tree. You don't get a banana plant because that's the law of nature. There are many, many biological laws. There's the genetics that we inherit from parents. There's the epigenetics that we acquire through prior generations before our parents. And we are heir to that conditioning. We are not free of it. To the extent that we begin to understand it and recognize it in our life and live in alignment with it, then we suffer less. If we struggle against our genetics or our epigenetics or other biological laws that we humans are heir to, then we suffer. You know, we're all going to grow older. And part of that process is painful. And part of it is, is not being healthy at times. And eventually we're gonna die. That's the law of nature. There isn't any one of us that's gonna escape that. That's not the that's not the direction of spiritual practice. But it's something that we if we if we acquiesce to it, if we just say, this is the way it is this is the way it is and not struggle, then we suffer less. If we're looking for the fountain of youth and and want to remain youthful forever, you really suffer. Really will suffer. The Buddha, in his discovery of the truth, the way things are, the laws of nature, he understood the physical laws of nature and the biological laws of nature, but he also understood an area of uh, the laws of nature that Western science is only now beginning to get interested in the neuroscientists are studying the laws of nature governing the unfolding of the mind, right? The Buddha saw this 2,500 years ago and discovered and revealed to us some of the laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. It's not accidental how it is that people are happy or miserable uh, or, or even that, as you can see in a, in, in a, newborn, in a newborn baby, They don't come into the world with an empty blank mind. They come into the world with a personality. And it doesn't take long for you to find out. (laughs) They got a personality. And brothers and sisters and twins and can be very different from one another early on. Because why? Well, they come with a package of, as the Buddha understood, they come with a package of default settings in the mind. Left over from previous life. You don't have to believe this. But as Manindra, one of our teachers from India said, you don't have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. Okay, so what are these default settings? Well, some of the default settings that the, that the Buddha recognized is we all have what's called a parami profile. The paramis are the wholesome qualities of mind that the Buddha had to, perf- a bodhisattva perfects in order to become a Buddha. The qualities of generosity, Loving-kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, energy, resolve. There's a few more. And we all have a what we would call a baseline default setting of generosity or ethical uh, alignment, living in an in ethical alignment with the way things are, or a default setting of loving-kindness or compassion or equanimity or wisdom. And it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, a baseline from which we live our life, you know, even without any further training. If we train in any of them, of course, we can develop it, enhance it. And if we go against that nature, that inherent nature, then we struggle, we suffer. Not only do we have a, a parami profile of wholesome states of mind, that are a baseline. We also have what's called the index of uh, anusia or latent torments. You know, little seeds of torment just laying in the mind like little mind bombs. And when, con- <laughs> and when conditions are right, we react with anger or frustration, disappointment, rage, depression, uh, anxiety. What's yours, favorite? I mean, where does that come from? How is it that, you know, a a one-year-old, a two-year-old, one-month-old, a two-month-old, and all the way up to (laughs) 67-year-old, default setting of, you know, impatience, anger, irritation, rage. You didn't cultivate that this lifetime. It comes with a package. Of course, we may have enhanced it with further acting out. Or we may have minimized it or reduced it through a lot of practice. Nevertheless, we can see that it's not accidental. When we get acting out wholesome or unwholesome, it's not accidental. And it's not just the whim of the moment either. There's a strong conditioning, uh, continuity conditioning or repetitive conditioning that's just going on and on and on. And before we even think of how we're going to Respond, we often react. Right? Why? Well, that's the nature of the mind, the laws governing the unfolding of the the conditioning of the mind. And when we can, when we hear this from the Buddha, and we start to pay attention to our own mind, now we can begin to see this for ourselves and confirm. Wow! There's, <laughs> we got some work to do. So. I point to this level of conditioning because another uh, law of nature that the Buddha discovered is the Dharma, and the laws of the Dharma or the the four noble truths are laws that that kind of articulate what has been observed to be universally true. first noble truth being the truth of dukkha, there is Pain and unsatisfactoriness in life. If we struggle against that law, well, you know what happens: pain, suffering, more of it. And if they, if we don't understand that the the path of practice for uh, reducing or minimizing that that dukkha or realizing the the end of that dukkha is the the Noble Eightfold Path, the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path, then again we'll be off on some other path, not leading to the end of suffering. So if we can hear the teachings and understand, oh this is, the Buddha didn't invent the Four Noble Truths, he realized the Four Noble Truths as this is a skillful way of understanding the facts of life that would lead to the lessening and eventual end of suffering. That's what he was concerned with. All Dharma practices, this is another right view, all Dharma practices cultivate wholesome states of mind. Whether it's practicing generosity or loving kindness or uh, practicing sila, the the precepts that we are taking each day, or practicing mindfulness in any form, practicing any of the paramis, patience, truthfulness, generosity, all of these cultivate wholesome and develop wholesome states of mind. And at the same time as the wholesome states of mind are being developed, the unwholesome, unskillful states of mind that lead to more suffering are minimized or lessened. This is just a law of nature. This is the way it is. That's a few right views that can help you, help support your practice here and your understanding of practice, just to remind yourself, as I as I did last night, you know, we're making our efforts here to live according to the precepts, develop mindfulness, offer some service to the community with our with our yogi jobs. And these are all skillful things to do, wholesome things to do, leading to, well, the happiness of living in harmony, eventually the seclusion of mind from obsessive torments, and ultimately Uh, insightful understanding of the nature of things. So I want to talk about some skillful views of meditation, how we can understand what we're doing here, the meditation part of what we're doing here, so that we can be inspired, encouraged, informed in our practice throughout the day. Now, you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of meditations, practices, techniques. We're just offering you mindfulness and uh, for the development of insight here. But in all kinds of meditation practices, in every moment, something is being known. In every moment, something is being known. Now this sounds like okay. So what? <laughs> so what? Um, I found it a big help when I, when I first started practicing with the uh, Utejniya, and you, know, you sit down and just remind yourself, okay, I don't have to make something happen. I don't have to kind of create mindfulness. Mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment. All I have to do is remind myself, in every moment, something's being known, what? That's how I started. In Every moment something's being known. What is being known in this moment? as you know the most ordinary, mundane things oh, sound in the room, chicken outside. I was in Burma, you know water in the pipes, you know feeling hot, feeling pressure of sitting on the cushion. But as you pay attention to those most ordinary, mundane things, eventually, you kind of get into the mind and you start noticing the what's going on in the mind and the mental states and the mental flavors and that's the doorway in. Just remembering that and, and this is a helpful little mantra at any place on the whole path. In this moment something's being known. What? Awareness or mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment. The function of mindfulness as a mental factor is to remember. It's to remember that there is this present moment experience. Now, why should that be so hard? Because <laughs> Remember today when you, doing the best you could, trying hard to be aware and mindful, sit down all wholesome determination to be mindful and promptly space out. And when you're spaced out, the mind wanders off thinking about something. You don't know you're thinking. You don't know where you are. You don't know if you're sitting or standing. You don't know your gender, your sex, your age, your posture. You don't know that you're human. You don't know you're in this room. You don't know what state you're in. You don't, you don't know anything, right? When you're thinking like that, you're not aware. You don't You don't even know you're alive. You don't know your name, don't know your age, nothing. But when that stream of thought comes to an end, thankfully it does, <laughs> you know, mindfulness picks up and says, oh, I've been thinking. And sometimes you can remember the whole train of thought of, of what you were thinking, right? You didn't know it at the time, but some part of your mind was recording everything that was being known while you were off in la-la land. Isn't that amazing? Now think about it. You're trying your best. You have every intention. You're making the best effort, and still totally lost. Humbling, isn't it? Isn't it? It is to me, it's like, wow. Okay, so why do I tell you that? Because what we're doing here is We're not cultivating experience. There's experience happening every moment. What we're cultivating is the recognition of it. Remembering to recognize what is going on in this moment. And if it's thinking, recognize thinking. If it's feeling some emotion, recognize that. If it's hearing sounds, recognize that. If it's having a fantasy, recognize that. Rather than being lost in it. That's all we're doing. We're trying to remember to recognize what is going on. That's mindfulness. And in practicing mindfulness for the development of insight, what we primarily pay attention to is our own body and mind's experience. We're not so interested in what's out there. Other people, plants, birds, sounds, the sky, trees, and all that we're primarily interested in what's going on in our own body and mind. So that we often start with paying attention to physical sensations. The breath at the abdomen, or the abdomen that moves as you breathe in and out, or the nostrils, or the posture, something that's very tangible. Because something that's very tangible is is easier to recognize. It has a distinctive quality. Hardness, softness, tightness, tension, pressure, throbbing, pulsing it has a location usually somewhere in the anatomical body and it has a duration in time it's very tangible you know and even then it's hard to stay present with physical experience when we uh, when the momentum gathers a little bit and we start noticing more of what's going on in the mind the mind is even is subtler you know thoughts are really quick they're slippery they're evasive they're elusive compared to knee pain right? and thoughts are a gross form of mental activity, there's much subtler forms of mental activity, to be known through this recognition, remembering to recognize what is going on. So primarily the field of of our attention is the body and the mind. It is not primarily a matter of belief. What you believe about your experience is not so important here. What we want to do is recognize, remember to recognize the experience in the most simple terms, the most ordinary um, unadorned way. The Buddha gave a short discourse and I think it's called the short discourse, I'm not sure but I think, where he said all beings, all of us, we only experience six things Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and some kind of thought process that's it you'd think if we only had to notice six things we wouldn't have much we'd, we wouldn't have much trouble right I mean, but try it, just just try it tomorrow, today, today. just six things is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touch, sensation, or thinking it might be easy, but Even though we're all just experiencing these six things, we're not all practicing mindfulness all the time. And so we miss. And when we miss noticing the simplicity of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, then the mind proliferates into hundreds of thousands of experiences, as we know. Now when we talk about uh, remembering to recognize the present moment, the present moment experience is what is called in... in this this tradition, the object. This is the object of our awareness. So as I've demonstrated with my hands before, in every moment, there's an experience being known. There's an object that arises being known by the mind. In every moment, there's an object being known. Objects can be anything that's knowable. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts. It can be any of the mental processes of planning, thinking, figuring out, analyzing, commenting, rehearsing. It can be any of the emotions. Sadness, joy, frustration, happiness, desire, frustration, bliss, gratitude, generosity, any of those. So anything that arises in the body and the mind can be known by the mind anything that arises can be known. And if we're remembering to recognize that activity, then we'll be mindful of it, mindfully aware of the object, what is being known, and the fact of the knowing. Somebody today in group said something really interesting. They said, it feels like there's a gap or a split where there's something happening and there's this observing that's kind of separate from it, which is significant. That's, that's the first level of deeply understanding the process of insight. Every moment something is being known. When we're not mindful aware it's like we are merged with the experience. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm breathing, rather than Sadness is being known. Happiness is being known. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. So when we can first get that separation from, or get that, get that view of the subjective understanding of what is going on, then we're, we're, we're on our way to developing insight, further insight. So objects are anything that can be known. While we're pointing to this experience of objects being known and we're, we're, we're emphasizing recognition of the knowing, of the awareness, right? Can you be aware? Are you aware? What you're aware of, that's good. But are you aware that you're aware? That's better. Because the objects are gonna change constantly. What we want to do is recognize this awareness that can be aware of anything, that arises and in fact even though we're attending to the awareness there's no if there's no object there's no awareness so there will always be an object to be aware of there's never a moment goes by when there's not an object to be aware of but rather than getting fascinated by the proliferation of pleasant unpleasant fascinating delightful objects what we want to do is cultivate the steadiness of this ongoing awareness to you can see to do that to be able to remember to recognize the present moments experience and to remember the awareness occurring in the present moments experience is the work of the mind it's not a matter of belief like do you believe this is what's going on yeah but that doesn't that doesn't do it for you you actually have to work your mind to Recognize what is going on. So we say that meditation is the work of the mind and what that implies or the corollary of that is it doesn't matter what posture you're in. The body can be sitting down, laying down, standing on its head, you know, climbing a tree. It can be doing anything. The mind is there. The mind is never separate from the body. Meaning whatever the body does, the mind is there. So whether you sit on a chair or a bench or you feel pain or you're slouched in a chair or whatever it is, the posture is not the practice. But there are postures, and I don't mean to, to minimize all the work we do with the postures and and uh, care of the body. There are postures that are a little more comfortable, and that's significant in practice because we sit a lot. So when we say that the meditation is the work of the mind, we can see that it's not primarily this mu- some muscular work of I got to I got to get something, I got to create something, I got to make something happen. It's more like can I remember? Can I just remember to recognize this moment? And that's what that's the work that we're doing here. We can also say and as Sayadaw Tejaniya mentions in both the 23 points for Right Attitude and also in the book that you're reading, that awareness is really the activity of what are called the five spiritual faculties. Faith, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, and understanding or wisdom. And these five elements or these five factors of mind are present In every moment of awareness so we can cultivate any of them if we wish faith or confidence in practice persevering energy uh, remembering to recognize the present moment mindfulness stability of mind is a result of the continuity of mindfulness wisdom is understanding and what you're hearing tonight these right views is part of the understanding that supports the development of, of awareness Saito has pointed out and we have tried to remind you of the unskillful attitudes of mind that can interfere with practice, that interfere with awareness. When we have expectations, when we're trying to create something in our experience, in our meditation, when we're trying to get rid of something, when we have judgments of it, when we're evaluating the betterness, whether something is better or worse than something else, all of these activities of mind stem from a wrong understanding of practice, wrong view. Instead he says that we should learn to observe with interest. Now as long as it's pleasant we don't mind observing. But when it turns unpleasant we don't like to take interest in that. So this is something you have to remember is that when discomfort arises in the body or the mind It's not your fault. It's nobody else's fault either. So don't blame anybody. (laughs) But you can learn to observe it with interest if you're interested to learn the nature of pain, if you're interested to learn the nature of anxiety, if you're interested to learn the nature of boredom, if you're interested to learn the nature of fear, If you're interested to learn the nature of desire, fascinating, fascinating. There's no end to how exciting it can be, even if it's painful. I know this sounds like an oxymoron, you know, but there are times in practice, well, you know, when you go get a deep tissue massage, you know, someone's got you on a table and is jamming their fingers into the most sensitive part of your body and it's excruciating and it feels great, right? Meditation is kind of like that. <laughs> it may be painful, but with the right attitude of mind, it can be thrilling, it can be exciting to learn about the nature of these states of mind that cause us so much suffering. And it is this knowledge of these states of mind that is going to free us from being entangled in them. Mark Epstein is a, a meditator. He's a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst, I believe. Uh, And he said, he writes about the interface of psychoanalysis and uh, uh, mindfulness practice, or Buddhist Buddhist practice. And he's written several books, and I found this quote in uh, one of them. He says, As the Buddhist understanding has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience leads to more suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. He says to work something through means to change your view, to change your understanding. If we try instead to just change our emotional reaction to something if we're sad we just change the sadness If we're angry, we just change the anger. If we just try to do that, we may achieve some short-term success. But we'll still remain bound by the force of attachment or aversion to the feelings which we are struggling to be free of. Now what this means in plain English is if we or when we discover that we are lost in a thought or an obsessing, obsessing about some hurt, and we're irritated or angry say we get angry and we're just frothing we're just totally burning up with anger and we recognize it we know we can get some relief if we practice loving kindness oh may i be happy may i be peaceful and if you're good at it wow well, all you got to do is remember ah oh, may i be peaceful may you be happy or elsewhere May, <laughs> may, you, may you be peaceful over there, out of my sight, or whatever it is. But there's a way of practicing loving kindness that can really soothe the inflamed, the inflamed heart. Or if you're caught in doubt, you know, and you're just really churning with, you know, should I, shouldn't I? What should I do? How do I do this? Am I doing it right? Is this going to work for me? Is this really true? you know and sometimes when we get caught in doubt we're just we're just spinning in thoughts and we can't can't figure it out and so we can we can borrow someone else's confidence so we read a book we read what jack or joseph or sharon has has written and oh okay okay this is what you got to do okay so we borrow someone else's confidence and we can get through it those what would you call them, antidotes to unskillful states of mind. The antidote to aversion, the antidote to desire, the antidote to uh, doubt can soothe you, Can can bring some relief from the experience of the torment. But the misunderstanding that allowed us to get caught in that anger, aversion, desire, is still in the mind. So what he's saying is, through mindfulness practice and the development of insight we can learn to change our understanding and to work something through means to change your view to change your understanding well this is what insight practice does insight practice pays attention to the experience of desire you know we know the object of desire when you're when you're caught up in the object of desire it's pleasant yeah, 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 I want it, I need it, yeah, yeah, it'll be so good when I get it, yeah, yeah. That's desire, right? I'm not the only one that does that, right? You know, as long as you're focused on the desire, I mean the object of your desire, is pleasant, so why look? I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, it's great, can hardly wait. But as soon as we turn our attention to the experience of desire itself, it's unpleasant it's really unpleasant to have be inflamed with desire and not able to satisfy it. That's suffering. To not be able to get what you want. But what's Mark, what Mark is pointing to is that to change your view of desire you have to observe it. So we, in this practice we, we turn our attention to the desire in order to learn about the nature of desire not just to get rid of it. You want to get rid of it? You can do that. Easy. Divert yourself, distract yourself, or just satisfy your desire. But what do you learn about it? Well, you can't be free if you just keep satisfying a desire. It's like drinking salt water to quench thirst. It doesn't happen. So to, to really change your views, change your misunderstanding that leads you to desire, we have to look at desire and the way to look at it is to get interested in it so when these obsessing obsessive states of mind arise today tomorrow as they will whether it's desire or fear or anger or impatience or confusion we don't want to just try to get rid of it but instead if we if we understand and this is where the right view comes in if we understand that there is value in observing it with interest then we can see oh desire is being known what does it feel like what is the story of desire what kind of thoughts come around with desire it's always about the future isn't it Man, when I get this in the future it'll be so good right so when you when you Pay attention to desire, the experience of desire, with interest. You can begin to see the nature of the thoughts, the kinds of thoughts that you have. You can begin to recognize all the sensations in the body and how they feel. You can, you can you know, isolate the physical sensations, the story of the desire. You can feel the desire in the heart. I say the heart, not the physical heart, but the mind. You can feel it. And if you observe it, you'll, you'll begin to understand. Gradually, you begin to understand the nature of desire and you won't be so caught up in the wrong view of desire. Mostly we think, if I set. Here's here's an, here's here's an interesting little tidbit. I don't think I'm the only one that had has had this assumption for a long time. If I could only get what I want... Then I'd be happy. You ever had that thought? You ever had that feeling? You ever had that, ever had that as a lifestyle? <laughs> if I can only get what I want, then I'll be happy. Now, doesn't that doesn't that sound reasonable? Doesn't it? We have been pursuing getting what we want. Well, for a long time. Did you get it yet? No. Okay. So obviously that's a wrong assumption because we've gotten all the things we wanted. We got, a new, we got a new toy, we got a new bike, we got an education, we got a partner, we got a career, we got a house, we got a car, we got this, we got, we got, we got. Finished? Not yet. So clearly that belief or that assumption is wrong. It doesn't lead to happiness. How are we going to change that mistaken understanding? By getting more of what we want? We have to look at that. And the way to look at this, the way to look at that is when desire next arises in your mind, turn around and look at it. In this way, we can really begin to see what is going on. What's the structure of desire? What's the nature of desire? And in this way, we can change our mistaken view of it. Being willing to observe these unpleasant states of mind, these tormented, obsessive states of mind, is the key to liberation. have to be willing to experience and interested to observe. And in this way we begin to understand. And what we begin to understand is the nature of the mental state, we begin to understand the nature of entanglement and the nature of liberation from that mental state. We begin to understand that whatever arises lasts for a moment or two and then passes away. Now, if I said, do you know that things change? You'd say, of course I know that things change. Yeah, day changes tonight, governments change, the economy changes, you know, first I'm hungry, then I'm not, and... First, I'm tired, then I get a little nap, and then I'm not. So we know things change, but that's not what I mean. I mean, do you understand that things change at a moment-to-moment, split-second level? Do we know, do we know that all that we have acquired for our sense of uh, safety, security, stability in life is fragile? Fragile. You know, it can disappear like that and so because things change because things are so fragile and so unstable we live with this level of insecurity that is inescapable and yet we try we're trying day in and day out to just be a little more secure a little more safe whether it's financially or in our relationships in the government in you know our possessions right we're trying Maybe that's a wrong view. <clears throat> so as we, as we pay attention, as we, we turn with interest and a willingness to really investigate, to look at, to really be aware of what this, what this whole uh, human life is about, this exploration, then we come to, we come to know more deeply More, more, with more integrity, with more clarity. Oh, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. We just observe it. It's not like we have to believe it, but we have to observe it in order to learn the way it is. You can read it in a book, but it doesn't go in very far. If you read it in a book, it just stays up here at the top, you know, 1% of your head. But as you observe it in your experience, as you will, day in and day out, for hours per day, and days per week, and weeks per year, then you get it. And when you get it at that, le- at that level of the, of the mind, of the heart, and it's embedded in the body, you change. Your, your understanding changes. Your priorities in life change. You make different decisions. This right view that comes from practice is learning to see the world, to see our life, through the eyes of the Dharma, rather than the eyes of our conditioning. And when we hear the Dharma and we practice the Dharma, we will begin to see the Dharma through our own through our own efforts. I want to end with a comment by Saito Tejaniya he says, Vipassana, or insight practice, always steps back to see things more clearly, whereas concentration practice always dives in and gets absorbed in the object. Stepping back and watching, observing, allows understanding to arise. So we're not looking to get absorbed in our experience. We're not looking to get lost in the experience, whether it's pleasant or otherwise. We're looking to step back, observe, in order to understand. And when we understand things more fully, more accurately, more in alignment with the way things are, then we stop struggling. And it's this stopping struggling that is the end of suffering that the Buddha pointed to. Being aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice, to come to new understandings. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness, which is developing insight. The objective of mindfulness is to develop insight. The insight, the new understanding, the new way of understanding what we've been living with all these years. Let's just take a moment and let the words settle down. Be quiet. When the mind is supported by skillful or right views and is unclouded by confusion, greed or negativity, reality is recognized. And this is seeing our world through the eyes of the Dharma and it is the foundation for well-being and liberation. you for listening to the Dhamma So there's there's a half hour now for more awareness practice sitting walking toilet tea whatever you need and then uh, there'll be another short sitting at at nine o'clock and I invite you to um, to return just to extend your day a little bit I know often first or second day of the retreat, about this time of day we've had enough. <laughs> I know what that's like but uh, it's hard to get this time, this opportunity to be on retreat so I invite you to come back and one of us will be here to share some reflections on the value of the work that we've done today. So it's good to to take a moment and reflect on the day and what we've accomplished and to put it in a perspective of uh, being grateful for the opportunity and recognizing the value. It helps you sleep better. Okay.